Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. The exposure to the wines of New Zealand through whatever means people access it um, is fabulous uh, in its own way. The wine industry, because it is still relatively young, and it's like I said at the beginning, it's gone through these phases of uh, investment and growth and development and you know our geographical indicator system, um, our very clearly defined regions and subregions and the varieties that are associated with it and the soil types and so on. Uh, allowing us to tell that story because we're learning at the same time. What we've discovered, and this is the big sort of industry we, is that we don't have to do so much because the flavours are speaking for themselves. But as soon as the organic farming, biodynamic farming, natural farming, if you like, movement got stronger, um, that message got louder and clearer. Mm-hmm. And I think the keyword is louder and clearer as opposed to better, because I think the quality was always there. It's just fine-tuned and in focus now because of those philosophies. And there are so many more producers now. Even some of those big players mm-hmm. are embracing the idea of um, biodynamic practices or organic without certification. They don't need it. Yeah. They're just doing it. And all this incidental association with the natural side of wine is built into what we're doing. Mm-hmm. In contrast, yes, you can find your $6.99 New Zealand wine on the mm-hmm. shelf here in the USA. There's no question that that goes on. And there is the bulk wine producer, and we do send wines out of New Zealand in large plastic bags and containers, and they're bottled here. That does go on. Mm-hmm. But the best story and the truest story of New Zealand wine is that which is done on a small scale. That is where the best wine comes from. And I'm talking less than 20,000 cases of wine, sometimes only 5,000 cases a year from a particular producer. That's where the true story of New Zealand lies. I feel like part of the New Zealand cultural makeup is a really strong practicality and sensibility. Mm -hmm. And what you're describing with respect to being biodynamic, being organic, it just makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you do it. You're not looking for attaboy or some kind of recognition or even the dollars that come with it. Mm -hmm. It's just what makes sense. And Mm -hmm. that's very appealing and very evident. And um, the other thing that I wanted to point out is that New Zealand is inherently limited geographically. Unlike some other countries, <laughs> you cannot keep planting. It's just not possible. So you have to go into the refinement mode at some point mm-hmm. because, frankly, there's value added. There's yeah, more money to be yeah, made, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And I guess we're at another point in our history where climate change is starting to have its impact on us in that if we are limited in our planting space, does the warming of the climate, does the seasons changing globally have an effect on us, mm-hmm. and if so, when? 
and with Antarctic polar cat melting and all this cold water rushing up the east coast of New Zealand and changing the climate in the northern hemisphere as a result of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and all, all, all these things are suddenly happening. How's that going to affect us mm -hmm. today, five years, 10, 20 years from now? I think we are starting to see some of those changes with the unexpected weather patterns that are coming through. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at these bushfires in Australia at the moment and the wild, wild Tasman Sea that yeah. separates us from Australia, yeah. enormous smoke clouds have been drifting across the Tasman and blanketing our country. Wow. That will have an effect on a few things. It's a little bit smoky at times. And I think that the Australian wine industry is going to suffer terribly because of these natural events, yes. there will be a flow and effect to us, positive and negative. Mm. Just like the tariffs that are threatening the US um, hospitality sector at the moment, if they come to be, it's going to be an opportunity for others and a disaster for so many people. It's amazing um, how interdependent we all are, whether we are yeah. acutely aware of it or don't bother thinking about it, it's the case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it scares me. <laughs> yes. It really does scare me. And we just, we have to embrace um, and continue, you know, fighting the fight for decent wine and, and, yes. and hold, people holding on to their jobs. They're really important. Now, there were so many things that were mentioned at the Sauvignon Blanc conference that had to do with the practicalities as well as really the identity of what New Zealand is as a brand, as a country, mm. and several varieties, and of course, Fran and Sato Sauvignon Blanc. Um, one of the remarks by Matt Kramer really got my attention, which was he spoke of the culture of um, a varietal, mm -hmm. which I never actually pondered before. Um, I'm super curious about what you take as on his point of view, which is there's a culture of Cabernet Sauvignon, there's a culture of, you know, Rhone varieties, and such like that and Chardonnay, but there's no culture, quote unquote, of Sauvignon Blanc, which is what makes it challenging um, in terms of assigning value to it and higher value potentially. Yeah, another great question. I'm not sure I can address that. I agree with Matt Kramer and I disagree equally. Ah. What I agree with is that we need to market New Zealand first and everything that makes us unique in who we are, which includes wine, and that it shouldn't be, I mean, Sauvignon Blanc is most definitely part of that story. And and I think selling the message of New Zealand first and the wine second is probably correct. Uh, the opposing view, which I have to just the way I think I have to voice is that there's something called economy yeah. and economies of scale and that it it is a variety that has helped us um, become or step onto the world stage of wine but we're a victim of our own success at the same time and in order to we, we don't want to destroy that but in order to change that we have to you know the rear guard has to be the New Zealand message and hopefully that will take over and I watch TV here all the you know not all the time but often enough that when I hear the word New Zealand I'm, I pay attention to what's going on on the TV and mm -hmm. it's everything from 
um, stories about nature to uh, indigenous people, to the wine sector, to the film sector as well. And so that New Zealand message is evolving and coming into the vocabulary of Mm -hmm. the regular American through TV. I absolutely agree with everything you said and I was doing a happy dance in my head because I happened to have written an article talking about this very subject and that was essentially the conclusion that I came to that the brand and the messaging of New Zealand is front and center. I cannot begin to tell you how happy it makes me Mm. that you feel the same way given who you are and the fact that you have such intense lifelong experience with the subject. I'm just thrilled right now. (laughs) When you first came to New Zealand yourself Mm -hmm. and you landed in Auckland Airport Mm -hmm. and as you walked down the corridor and you're walking through the corridors and you know you eventually get to the duty-free but there's the carvings the music the sound of people and kids laughing and the beaches and it's all recorded and Mm -hmm. Maori song and things like that the minute you get off the plane New Zealand is welcoming you yes it's saying so pleased to see you and and that's the only country in the world that that happens that the song the sounds um, the senses are engaged immediately and then you know you're out on the street and you've got a decent coffee in your hand and and away you go and part of that New Zealand story for me is how great the people are and how welcoming you know hospitality seems to be something that's quite natural to us so true that Kiora spirit is so extraordinary and you're absolutely right it totally surrounds you it's almost like a star wars reference that leaves to mind it surrounds us it finds us yeah it is in fact very powerful Mm -hmm. and it permeates everything Mm -hmm. and you cannot separate that from products that come out of that country totally and when you were talking about um you know the global phenomena the climate change and such like that there's a part of me that's so gratified that new zealand is working on it because i have such faith Mm -hmm. knowing what i know about new zealand people like i said if Anybody can come up with a solution in an expeditious manner. I really believe New Zealand is mm. the top candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you're so right that there's so many challenges that we're facing, some completely out of uh, control, some self-imposed. Um, but I think one of the biggest um, is the fact that worldwide, w- the perception of wine is now being challenged by beer and craft spirits and all kinds of bells and whistles Mm, that are coming along. mm. So for somebody like you that takes a helicopter view and from the educational communication viewpoint, what conversations do you feel should be happening as far as really contributing to raising the profile of wine and awareness just as a subject of wine? Well, it's very interesting because I s- from from uh, the helicopter view, I see beverages as being on a cycle. It's cyclic, oh. and that the think global, drink local mm-hmm. um, idea is becoming more powerful. So we're going to restaurants now where you can buy locally brewed beer or, and locally distilled spirits and drink local wine and that is something that um, tourists love mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and people w- want to experience. I don't, well, I don't know where change comes from in terms of, you know, cocktail culture is mm-hmm. huge. It, it, you know, it, it faded away for a long time because wine took over mm-hmm. and then suddenly beers coming up the left flank and all of these wonderful garage type beers, uh, individual microbreweries uh, are um, dominating that sector over the big players. You know, we can all, we can all buy a Budweiser or a Corona or a Heineken, but people are wanting to drink something from the local area, something special. And now suddenly cocktails are back in vogue and they've mm-hmm. been strong for a few years now. And any decent restaurant that wants to keep its reputation should know how to make a Negroni in a Manhattan. And a good one at and that. And a good one at that. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, you're going to be judged on that. The whole mm-hmm. dining experience is judged on how good that first cocktail was. And so the spirits industry is embracing that big time. So I think everything is on a cycle and that so long as the quality of wine stays strong and isn't diluted because of the powerful dollar, mm-hmm. then we, we will survive. My biggest concern personally is how the uh, availability of um, marijuana is going to change the wine industry. Now, I n- haven't tried a marijuana-infused wine. It frankly doesn't interest me. That's mm-hmm. that's that's like asking you to drive um, a car with plastic seats now. It's, it's like, why, why would I want to do that? And, but I know that it's going to have an impact. I know that there's this bubble that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it's going to infiltrate the wine sector and then it's going to infiltrate the beer sector and probably the spirits one as well Mm -hmm. and I think that worries me because they're taking one product and they're trying to apply it to everything it's like sugar you know you put it in everything dilutes the essence of it it does so I think that that's something that is bubbling away in the background that I that concerns me so the purists Mm-hmm. The purest wine drinker, the purest beer drinker, um, the purest spirit drinker, if you like, are those that are going to uh, allow us to keep doing what we're doing. You won't catch me reviewing a wine infused with THC. <laughs> it's not yeah. going to happen. No, and not in any kind of judgmental way, but the reality, the economic reality of labor issues that it brings along because clearly it's um, it can afford to pay more. Mm-hmm. to workers mm-hmm. so there's your hand touching the vines that are, is being challenged and then all the way to the final product mm. um, yeah I guess we all have to ponder and decide for ourselves whether we align with some sort of instant gratification some type of high mm-hmm. quite frankly or if you really want to uh, err on a purist side as you described and really experience the full gamut of what that product was intended for mm-hmm. um do you believe in sort of the generational segmentation? There's a bit of an obsession going on about the millennial because that's the next consumer once they come into the economic uh, prosperity of some type and spending money on um, alcoholic beverage or the beverage in general for that matter. Um, do you believe that that particular you know, future spending force should be 
isolate it and communicate it with differently than the previous generation? What are your thoughts on that? In a word, yes. I think that the the way in which a millennial um, is targeted mm-hmm. is has to be different mm-hmm. because uh, a millennial, you know, arguably thinks differently mm-hmm. and is more from the inside out rather than the outside in in terms of how they they might think. And that I'm trying to keep it generalised, but there's a lot of research done on how to. Um, target millennials how to work with them mm-hmm. and uh, and both are very challenging show challenging r- results and but I also think there were different you know personality types or people types before millennials came along mm-hmm. and um, they will be has-beens um, soon enough because the next generation is actually showing a uh, what do you call it a collectiveness of that they they have a little bit of that millennial thinking but they're much much more global in terms of their thinking and that we're coming out the other side of the millennial generation I feel at the moment I'm seeing a lot more of it from an education perspective but yes we have to target them differently and they seem to set their own trends as well they do their own thing in terms of your audience that you communicate with I'm assuming that includes millennials, of yeah. course. What is that dialogue like? Um, what, in your view, are they looking for in terms of information? They consume it differently, but the actual genesis and the source and the authenticity, all those things, how does that play in? Well, if I can squeeze it into 20 to 60 seconds at a time, <laughs> then I'm then I can target them because I think it's a... Um, I, to me, it's just a challenge. It's a challenge to choose my words to package information, whether it's visual or auditory, uh, in, into sound bites and visual bites that I know what I can grab their interest. If I've grabbed their interest in a much shorter period of time mm-hmm. and inspire 10% of them or 5% of them, mm-hmm. then I, I'm successful. Um, communicating with them is got to be done quickly. It's got to be done through multiple mediums mm-hmm. and it is device driven because that's something that they own for themselves mm-hmm. and that I can't just rely on a slideshow as an educator. I ha- you know, you have to target individuals and find out what they want uh, and do it quickly. Otherwise, they're moving on. <laughs> yes, attention. <laughs> they're moving on real fast. It almost feels like at times there's reluctance to admit that you're a blank slate. There's this supposition that with all the information, we live in the information age, you should know something. Mm. So they wind up in the same place as anyone else, which is you really don't know a lot and you don't know where to start and you're intimidated by it. Mm-hmm. I think that's just us humans. That's correct. How, how do you overcome that? Meaning. And let's take an average consumer, regardless of the age group, and just think about them having some type of interest in wine. What do they start? What would be your advice? My advice would be that to them, Mm -hmm. that don't be afraid to ask any question 
about anything and the way in which that question is answered will allow the, the, that individual to move forward to the next question based on the answer meaning it sounds a bit convoluted um, that I want people who are new to wine to not be afraid to ask a question Brilliant. for example where do you get all these descriptors for wine from mm -hmm. where on earth did they come from yeah and and I say well it comes from everything I've ever smelled or eaten cooked consumed drunk in my life so far and we all have um, let me let me give you an example I didn't eat meat for the first 25 years of my life never ate it Wow and um, just that was part of my upbringing mm -hmm. but I could walk into a house and no meat was cooking by the smell and sometimes I could know which meat it was based on the smell and the you'd walk into a restaurant or a cafe and you know that bacon was being cooked in the kitchen because of the aroma the smell that was coming through and you know how soft um, textured a marshmallow can be right so it's finding the th the vocabulary that we share mm -hmm. um, naturally because of all of the things that we see and do and eat that's the common ground and the only difference is that you're not embracing that as a new wine drinker you're not using your experiences mm -hmm. to help you describe wine whereas I figured that out a long time ago <laughs> and I can for a new wine drinker I just through basic questioning I can find out what kind of vocabulary is available to them to help them I think this is so important I just want to kind of flesh this piece out I remember 20 years ago I was reading Parker like voraciously <laughs> um, and I remember him saying something about walking by a construction site and smelling you know freshly laid asphalt and um, obviously you can smell and even taste it in the wine and to me it just felt so authentic or pencil shavings you know mm. it's not something you would chew on right mm -hmm. um, these days there's so much skepticism about the wine lingo mm -hmm. and rightly so there's some people that wax poetic that's so far off the grid that it does seem kind of self-important more so than actually insightful but there's very valid piece there as far as legitimately the flavors the aromas that you latched onto sensorily mm -hmm. and they're able to communicate then verbally and that's very different than just making stuff up yeah. isn't it absolutely you know uh, here's an example when uh, one of the first wines I expose any student to in my classroom is Riesling mm -hmm. because Riesling and great Riesling is so pure and precise mm -hmm. and you can categorize the fruits and the non-fruits very easily and you can categorize the texture very easily through uh, acid and weight and rather than saying to you as a student um, what are you smelling and of course that's confusing to a new wine drinker well it smells like wine is usually the answer <laughs> but if I said well hang on a minute Riesling typically has an apple smell to it and if I gave you the choice of green apple red apple or yellow apple what would it be 
Uh, and most of them would go green apple and I say bingo or if I said granny smith um, gala or pacific rose apple which would you you know so ask the question in a different way by giving specific examples and if they went granny smith I go now you're smelling exactly the same thing as me so I've given them a very small range and a frame of reference and they've targeted in on that and I go, okay, let's put that to one side. Let's smell the wine again, but let's smell it differently. And, you know, smell it, you know, I get them to work through exercises in terms of how they actually smell a wine. And then, okay, we've put the apple to one side. Now let's go down the citrus track. Mm. If I said to you lemon, grapefruit, um, lime, or lime or whatever, yeah, mm-hmm. what would it be? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that person go grapefruit and that person would go lime and that person go lemon and they mm-hmm. go actually you're all right all Riesling has a citrus layer to it but you're identifying with the fruit that you are allowing yourself to eat the most some people love the smell of lime but would never eat it I don't like grapefruit personally but I can smell it a mile away because mm. it's a smell that I don't like and so I do occasionally come across students who've never eaten citrus in their life. Say, oh, what's that? You know, I say an orange, what's that? You know, or um, um, dried fruits, dried pineapple and things like that. It's like they've never, never gone near it. And I suppose that's kind of a millennial thing as well. And I said, okay, next time you go to the supermarket, I want you to buy one each of all of those and smell them before (laughs) you eat them. Yeah, just one. Mm-hmm. Won't cost you a lot of money, and um, so it's the the answer to your question is the way in which you engage, the frame of reference, the opportunity for them to choose something, and not embarrass and embarrass them by um, if if they're not quite there. Some people can't smell as well as others, also. So there's obviously the biology and the physicality of it, mm-hmm. but in the magical world, setting that aside and saying, let's say we're all equal for a moment. Do all of us have a potential to become an MS sensory? Yes. Really? Absolutely. Yeah. I wasn't born a master sommelier. I took an interest in something. Uh, it was a subject that I loved and I wanted to learn more about it. It helped me in my job and it's something that I grew, but I had to train. I had I had to learn to smell, use use you know my senses in a different way, and we can all do that. That's we are all capable. Empowering. Mm. So the differential is the work that you put in, the dedication, the time. Hundred percent, yeah. And it's not really inherent. Um, that's a great message. So, again, back to that consumer that's now feeling better, um, that they can ask questions, but. And you've written so many lists from many illustrious restaurants. Here we are as a consumer with a wine list. Um, and I'll make it personal. Let's just say that I'm in an Italian restaurant um, and there's so many producers I'm not familiar with. No idea what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. What is a good question to ask at this point? The customer to the sommelier? Yep. I would ask them, I would suggest that they explain to the sommelier the last great wine that they had, the last wine that they really enjoyed. Got it. White or red. 
and or sparkling for that matter or even rosé so that they can describe to the sommelier what they liked about the wine how fruity it was mm -hmm. or how woody it was or how dry it was and ultimately what the customer is doing is describing the intensity and the structure of the wine for the sommelier to catch on to because mm -hmm. as songs we want to know um, you know the structural elements how acidic how dry how alcoholic and we're getting that just through the conversation without specifically asking the question the customer is giving us that information and we know where that wine came from because they said oh, I had this wonderful you know Pinot Noir from um, um, San Luis Obispo yeah. or Santa Rita Hills or right. whatever it was or I had this fabulous dry wine from Italy and it said Chianti on the bottle or Chianti <laughs> or whatever however however do you say that you know and so we're picking up on all of these messages and we go okay I've got three wines on the list all various price points and this one is similar to your wine in this way this one is similar to your wine in that way they're never going to be the same and 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 try to sell them something that's correct for them yes not make a sale as such that just happens organically and naturally you know, find the wine that's perfect for the customer based on the conversation a customer should never say what's good yes <laughs> and or i would advise them not to go in and say what's good because good for me could be different from good for you and we just want to find out how dry they're prepared to go how sweet they're prepared to go how fruity they're prepared to go and then away and and then we can target certain parts of italy as a result of that yes yeah so again what a great scenario we've gone from intimidation and did you say somebody was trying to impress a date or a group of colleagues mm. and such like that? They're yeah. looking at the wine list. Yeah. No frame of reference. There's some regional esoteric wines. Mm -hmm. Even people in the industry, I mean, it's not, yeah. it's not uncommon. Yeah. If you ask the right questions, you'll be rewarded with a yeah. great experience as yeah. opposed to just feeling blind and picking the most expensive bottle or mm -hmm. you know, making something up. Yeah. There are some customers, I have to say, that are very difficult to move out of their comfort zone mm -hmm. and if you take the Napa cab drinker mm. because a Napa cab drinker as great as those wines are if if that is the Ferrari wine for them it's very difficult to move them away from that because you're suddenly playing around with their um, their their um, hit points their their moments of pleasure by reducing the amount of oak yeah. or reducing the amount of alcohol or reducing the amount of fruit concentration because those wines are, can be very big and tick a lot of those boxes so as soon as you pull some of that away by introducing them into something that's got a lot of oak but it's old oak mm -hmm. aka Italy um, mm -hmm. and it's got less fruit and flavor of more um, diverse individual characters whether it's site driven or winemaker driven then we're pulling them out of their comfort zone mm -hmm. the conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast already available for your download thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of pal exposure featuring Alona Thompson